Whereas if you're just like, oh, well, this is a mythology, so it's okay if the entire universe is balanced on the back of a turtle. You know, like that's just right. You know, like that's just the nature of mythology that it's yeah. kind of absurd and ridiculous and out there, and that's okay. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one god man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 108 of the Movie Byte podcast. We usually talk about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. But today, TJ is sick and voiceless. So I'm hijacking this podcast. We are recording on Tuesday, October 8th, 2014. I am Joe Darnell, your host. And joining me today is a man from the other side, Mr. Michael Minkoff. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing very well. So... Obviously, this is going to be a very different kind of episode of Movieology. Usually, we start the show by highlighting items of interest, and TJ and I will ramble on about the latest movie trailers and casting changes and new movies that Marvel's working on and make a couple of references to Star Wars. But aside from the Star Wars, we can do all that other stuff. Eh, I wouldn't be surprised if The Force comes up eventually somehow. No, there's always some kind of reference. Let's avoid that. Okay. There are two things, though. That we could talk about that I think are of interest. The Inside Out trailer, for one, and the possibility of Spider-Man entering the Marvel Universe. Yes, that was a pretty interesting article I came across. I think someone, one of our uh, one of our listeners, Paul Munger, actually sent that article from Yahoo. Are you thinking about the news piece from Yahoo? Um, I don't. I, I was. I actually just read it on MovieByte. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Well, that's what you should do if you're listening to this show. Uh, Of course, yeah, that's what you should always do. Um, But no, I read it there that apparently Sony might be partnering with uh, the Marvel Studios in order to insert Spider-Man into that world somehow or another. I mean, he does belong in that world. Like, Spider-Man is a Marvel character, so. We'll hold that thought. We'll get to the Marvel Universe and Spider-Man in a second. What I wanted to highlight real quick was that today we're going to talk a lot about Left Behind because you had a couple of posts about it on your website, renewthearts.org. So real quick, though, if you don't remember who Michael Minkoff is, uh, could you introduce yourself? Yes. I'm Michael Minkoff. Hi, Michael. Hi. I am the president and co-founder of a nonprofit organization called the Nehemiah Foundation for Cultural Renewal, and we are an organization that promotes and produces excellent christian art or at least i think we produce it oh and i have to agree i've listened to a lot of your music and i'm pretty happy with it yeah and i also Thanks. have a, a pretty good book written by you and i'm still plowing through that because it's a really awesome and complex deeply thoughtful book and i just don't get the chance to read all that much in the way of books these days it's all right i actually just finished recording an audiobook version of that it's sort of our manifesto on arts uh called according to his excellent greatness and um, I just did finish up the audiobook and editing on that and whatnot, and so that should be available fairly soon. We're planning on giving it away for free. Oh, very good. Yeah. Looking forward to it. And we'll have links to all these things that we've been talking about that Michael is up to in the show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 108. Okay, so uh, we will talk a little bit about some news, but we will spend the majority of our time talking about the Left Behind movie and what it means for Christian films. Last time we had you on the podcast was episode 86 when we talked about Noah's film, and uh, I think we pretty much agreed that it was worth watching just to make ourselves upset, and beyond that, it was just uh, relatively a huge disappointment for the Christian audience. (laughs) Yeah, I had mixed feelings about it. And I think my feelings are more mixed now than they've ever been before because it is a quality film from a production standpoint. And that's sorely lacking as far as the Christian market is concerned. But 
it, it's like it, it seems like you can never have both of those things high production values and orthodoxy in the same film it's 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 either one or the other and it's often not either actually um so i i'm i'm looking for that i want to see it i, I want to see that movie that has high production values and um you know solid you know biblical truth and I have a theory about that when we get to the main discussion for this episode. Yeah. I would like to talk about why that is maybe because I have a theory and I think I'm probably right, but who knows? I mean, everyone thinks he's probably right. Yeah. So let's start with uh, the first thing that was interesting to both of us in items of interest. We have Pixar's inside out teaser trailer. Pixar is working on a very novel concept. TJ shared this on October 3rd. Uh, Inside Out is the story about a little girl and the emotions that she experiences inside her mind. And each one of those emotions is personified and they all fend for their own form of emotion, like anger and sadness and joy and love and the like. The teaser trailer, Michael, I thought was a little bit of a disappointment because Pixar is known for either knocking it out of the park or for the most part, just really letting down their fans. And when it comes to trailers, more often than not, the trailers are pretty crummy. I mean, like I've, I've thought about such things because more often than not, the audience is thinking about their movies. They're not thinking about their trailers, but if you go back and you pay attention to the majority of Pixar trailers, they've been hit and miss. There were just two really great exceptions. One of them was monsters incorporated's teaser trailer where Sully and Mike are hiding in the closet and they come out to scare a kid and they find that they're in the wrong place at the wrong time altogether. And it was like a little sketch. And that was very pleasantly unexpected. The other example of this was another sketch that they did for The Incredibles, where Mr. Incredible is putting on his super suit and he's, uh, you know... He's thinking about the old days. And what's funny about that sketch is that it's not actually consistent with the film because the suit he's putting on is the new one. But in the context of the teaser, he's putting on the new one as though it was his old one. And that was an enjoyable thing as well, because it actually showed us a lot about the character and what this movie would be like and gave us a glimpse of what his name Parker was like. I, I don't know that we can really say that there is a verdict out yet for Inside Out, just looking at this teaser trailer, because the majority of the trailer was Pixar saying, from the makers of. Right. And they just and, went on and on. And I, I think it's important to make a distinction between trailers and the movie anyway, in the same way that I make a distinction between the cover of a book or the cover of an album and the artistic thing that goes in, on inside of it, because... Uh, the cover of the book, the cover of an album, a trailer, a preview, et cetera, it's all part of your marketing. And so, you know, your marketing gurus, whoever they may be over at Pixar, um, got the idea that, all right, you know, we've been faltering a little bit recently. So let's put together sort of a montage of our greatest hits, remind people of our greatness, you know, remind people of the things that they really connected to in the past and sort of connect that to uh you know this movie that we're that we're producing and and i i think in that way the trailer was effective uh, i don't really care about trailers very much uh so <laughs> well because usually they're just advertisements they're yeah they're marketing they are marketing and and to me that they're usually not very accurate there have been so many times when i mean even the brave trailer the the uh for for pixar that was very misleading and a lot of trailers are very misleading. Moving away from Pixar, the trailer for Gods and Kings or Gods and whatever it is, the Ridley Scott film about the Exodus. I have no idea what that movie is going to be like. Because from the preview, it seems they stuck pretty closely to the biblical story of sorts. Uh, but, does, I mean, they did that similar thing with the Noah trailer as well, where they know that they have to market it to this particular demographic. And so the trailer is just not, in my opinion, it's almost never helpful. Like, right. Um, yeah. So if you're interested in Inside Out, the verdict is still out. And I personally don't think that we can really know if it's going to be good or bad. No. I'll still see the film yeah. because I still care about Pixar and I'm very hopeful that they can get their act together. Yeah, but they do need to get their act together. See, that's the problem. Right. We're definitely in that position. Right. That they, they've let us down. Yeah. 
several times recently. And uh, even well, to the point that Disney films are almost besting them. Yeah, I'd say almost. that probably the, the clearest example of that was the fact that Wreck-It Ralph was produced by Disney around the same exact time that Brave was being released by Pixar. And Brave feels like a bad Disney film and Wreck-It Ralph feels like a good Pixar film. So it was like, there's like, and I don't, I don't know if you can lay the blame for that entirely on this, but John Lasseter has obviously been spending a whole lot of time over at Disney. And I think that Pixar has probably suffered for its lack of vision there. Um, but it may actually be the connection of Disney to Pixar is finally catching up to Pixar because for instance, the faltering with brave, the addition of cars Two, which was a total tragedy um, the first movie wasn't that great to begin with. You know, all of that felt very much like Disney political correctness slash marketing and very much out of line with Pixar's normal uh, modus operandi. So I, I don't know if that they're ever really going to be able to recover from that necessarily if the bureaucratic structure there has been shifting, you know, because of their connection to Disney. I don't, I don't see that unshifting, you know? No, no. Yeah, yeah and... It, uh, who knows what's really going on at Pixar and Disney these days? Because it usually we find out about five to ten years after the fact. You right. Know, we we only recently found when the out. gag order lifts and people start talking about how they were you know right beaten over the head. <laughs> right. Only recently did we start learning about the difficulties and the disagreements that Disney and Pixar experienced ten years ago. Right. So yeah, just who knows what's going on now? I don't. We're probably way off target, even. Probably. So uh, there was another item that we wanted to talk about. What was that? Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah. Right. Of course. Duh. Okay. That other Disney movie mm-hmm. <laughs> franchise Marvel related, I guess, obscured though. Because, Does Disney own Marvel too? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, that's the, th- and Star Wars. I know. Like Star Wars came up. I think they're going to buy Apple next. They might. And then they'll own the world. Mm. And, and t- no, no, no. Nintendo. They have to get Nintendo too. It's probably on their list. And then it's a done deal. Yeah. So Fox actually has the rights to... No, Sony. Uh, Sony has mm-hmm. the rights to Spider-Man. And word has it they're talking about getting Spider-Man into some of the Avengers films. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. But if you don't know anything because you haven't been listening to the podcast, then I should tell you that Avenger films are made by Marvel Studios itself. All the fans have been wondering for a long time whether or not this would work out, whether or not Spider-Man could make it into an Avengers film. And it makes total sense because Spider-Man is Spider-Man. It's like leaving Superman out of the Justice League. And he was in the Avengers. Yeah, he was in the Avengers. I mean, he is part of the Avengers. Right. There was always a rotating door of superheroes that would be in the Avengers yeah. team, but they would inevitably there was a Spider-Man. You know that Spider-Man gets around. He was actually in a lot of Transformers comics. In oh, the really? Days. Yeah. But that that was just a thing that comic books have done over the years is there have been guest appearances and crossovers like, you know, Superman and Batman, uh, Spider-Man had a comic once together, mm. which makes no sense because they're from the two different, you know, comic book franchises i think i'd be way more disappointed to see spider-man featured in a transformers film than i would be in a superman or an avengers film yeah the ones i'm thinking about he was actually black spider-man i I have those comics oh of course because it's the alien thing so they're like oh transformers are aliens he's got the alien symbiote let's put them together that'll be awesome yes they were probably wrong so for what it is worth, I think the real attraction to having spider-man in an avengers film is seeing what joss whedon would do with him because ultimately, that could probably spur better concept stories for the future of Spider-Man. Not sure what those could look like, but if Spider-Man could be influenced by Joss Whedon, it would look better for his franchise. Probably. It's it's just it's hard to determine because, I mean, Sony owns Spider-Man, so are they gonna? Would they be going in there and saying, "This is the way we want"? spider-man to be developed or would it be more of an issue of uh spider-man having to fit himself and fit his franchise into the marvel universe the marvel cinematic universe which i think is probably more likely because i mean what leg does sony really have to stand on i mean they do own spider-man as far as like the cinematic rights but it's obvious that marvel studios has been hugely successful especially compared to the most recent uh, Spider-Man movies, which aren't that bad, actually. To be honest, I mean they've gotten they've gotten panned by critics, but I think 
And TJ. I th- yeah, and TJ. But I think the main reason for that is just their closeness to the uh, Sam Raimi to films. the Sam Raimi uh, franchise. Yeah, because they're not really covering a great deal more ground. And there's a- another issue that I have with those films, and I think it's probably the biggest issue, is I think that they're they're losing sight of the fact that some superheroes work better within a mythology. So Spider-Man works better within a mythology. Batman doesn't need to have the mythology to the same degree. So, for instance, Christopher Nolan was successful with Batman because he, he sort of made it plausible of sorts. There are obviously things that are totally implausible about Nolan's Batman. But you have, you know, the rumbler and the, you know, the, the, the fabric that's got, like, electric stiffness and all these other things, which were based loosely on actual technological advancements. But then I feel like that was so successful that they're trying to put that idea and that feel and that same realism into other uh, superhero films. And I think, like, for instance, Man of Steel has totally and completely faltered because of that. I mean, man, the Man of Steel, the Superman, current Superman films, I think, do not work in those terms, and neither does Spider-Man. So, for instance, the Rhino in Spider-Man 2 was really stupid. <laughs> right. It was really stupid, and it was totally unnecessary. Just allow it to be a mythology and put the gray-skinned rhino suit on the dude and let him be a rhino, because that's what he is in the comics. You don't have to put him in like, oh, no, this is actually body armor. It's like, well, as soon as you're starting to give plausible explanations for these things, you, 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 you very quickly, you know, swerve into the realm of ridiculous. Um, you know, whereas if you're just like, oh, well, this is a mythology... So it's okay if the entire universe is balanced on the back of a turtle, you know, like that's just right. You know, well, like that's it. just the nature of mythology that it's yeah. kind of absurd and ridiculous and out there, and that's okay, you know. And in, but instead, they're like, no, that's not okay. We want to make it realistic, and it's like, well, Spider-Man doesn't work in a realistic universe, therefore, you've actually made it absurd, right? You know, because in all actuality, no kid gets bitten by a spider and gets radioactive powers either. If you could buy that and you could make all these exceptions for the hero, why didn't you make those exceptions for the villain? And it's really inconsistent because sometimes they're okay with the Green Goblin having that kind of power, but they're not okay with the other villains getting that kind of power. Right. But then they make a huge mistake like with what they did with Electro. So what the heck? I don't but, know. I, yeah. I don't know. They, they, they're very inconsistent and it doesn't seem like they have... I mean, one of the it problems seems like is Sony they don't have a not, visionary. Right, and it doesn't seem like Sony there. has enough filmmakers that really appreciate the superhero genre, understand what works and what doesn't, have a background experience with comics, and an appreciation for just what worked and what didn't. And, and if they had that, which obviously Marvel does, and it seems like even DC doesn't have any more. No. At least the D- DC's studio doesn't have. Well... They were all ruined by Batman, honestly. Yeah. They were all ruined by Batman because the, the Nolan's approach to Batman was very effective. It just happened to be very effective for the Batman universe. It isn't really effective for pretty much any other superhero that I can think of. Mm. Because Batman is really the only superhero that has no special powers. He, he, he In the comic book, I'm saying, he's just a dude with a lot of money some kung fu skills or martial arts skills or whatever and like a knack for, you know, gadgetry. He's not a superhero in the typical sense. Like he does his origin story is is very human, you know. Right. So it so Nolan's approach to that really works. But then you've got, you know, Superman who's like from another planet and he just happens to be uber powerful here on Earth because our, you know, planetary our influence. Sun, is, yeah, exactly. And all this different. other kind of stuff. You're like, you're already in Ridiculand. Like you're way outside of the scope <laughs> of, of normalcy there. And when you try to when you try and fit that, be like, no, this is plausible, see, then people it just it becomes really ridiculous. I, the whole thing was absurd. Man of Steel had some really absurd moments. <laughs> Because they wanted you to believe it was more realistic, but really what it was was more science fiction than it was in a 
consistent superhero story that was made more realistic. And it feels like really cheap science fiction. Yeah, it is. And that's the thing is Superman is not science fiction. Superman is mythology. Yeah. I mean, and like everybody knows that the DC universe, it has a great deal more to do with mythology, magic, and gods. Mm-hmm. And Marvel's world uh, has more to do with mutants, science, mutants, evolution, right. and science fiction in general. Right. And, that, and that's what makes the, their worlds work well in their own way, as long as they remain consistent right. with the things that they have already set in place. And Joss, Joss Whedon has done a really good job with the Avengers. I'm, I'm actually totally and completely surprised by how good a job he's done. But uh, I think one of the maiden reasons for it is that he respects what was valuable and what was enjoyable about the original ideas. And he doesn't hold it against the fanboys for liking the elements that some people would call cheesy, you know? So, like, I mean, the the dude filmed Firefly or, you know, that that show is like the the ultimate in cheesy fanboyism. I'm sorry for any fans of Firefly. I, I, I don't, I watched the whole series before it was, you know. Even the so, movie? And yeah, Ser- Serenity, yeah, before it was so unceremoniously destroyed. But, uh, and I understand what people like about it, but there's no doubt that it is cheesy. And yeah. that's okay. Right. Like Star Trek is cheesy too. Like I'm I'm sorry TJ, but like the shows were pretty cheesy, but that's part of their charm. And Josh Whedon doesn't pull back from that. Like a lot of directors do. A lot of directors are so afraid of just sincere fanboyism that there's this cynicism, realism that sort of seeps into everything they do and it kind of ruins the wonder and childlikeness of the comic book world. Anyway. All right. Well, that's definitely on. enough to talk about for Spider-Man and Marvel and DC and all that other cool stuff. Nothing that you haven't heard before on this podcast. <laughs> so if you want to find more about this uh, update, visit MovieBite and look at the article, Sony's Spider-Man to enter the Marvel Avengers universe, question mark. So we might as well get down to the main topic for discussion today, Michael. We're going to talk about the Left Behind movie that just came out the other day. Left Behind... 2014 was uh, released on October 3rd and has a running time of one hour and 45 minutes. Its production budget was 16 million. And since that time, it has domestically made 7,261,000 opening weekend, 6,300,000. So it's not doing very well, actually. It's not like we, yeah, I know. Uh, Not, not too much of a surprise and not really a letdown for, people like us because we are a very unique sort of niche within a niche. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I think because usually movie bite doesn't bring up things like our faith and values and our religiosity, but this was something that mattered to TJ and he wanted to talk about it. And the only reason that he's not here to talk about it with us is because he got feverish and he lost his voice. But he wanted us to talk about this, so we are. And thank you, Michael, for joining us, because I would not have wanted to talk about this by myself. Well, I don't think you can talk about it by yourself. Mm. Well, I mean, you could, but people probably think you're crazy. Yeah. Well. What do you think, Joe? I don't know, Joe. What do you think? I've done that, but no one knows. Yeah, I keep it that way. That's a podcast for You just put it out of the podcast. Maybe edit that out. So on IMDb, it points out a couple of the star power that we have here. Nicholas Cage plays the lead. Leah Thompson plays the main character's wife. And Chad Michael Murray plays Buck Williams, who we might remember was played by Kirk Cameron in previous Left Behind films. It also stars Nikki Whelan, Cassie Thompson, and Quentin Aaron. And a little bit more about the story of this Christian film. In quotes, that was air quotes. Correct. Virtual podcast quotes. Yeah. Uh, Here's the summary from the studio. The most important event in the history of mankind is happening right now. In the blink of an eye, the biblical rapture strikes the world. Millions of people disappear without a trace. All that remains are their clothes and belongings. And in an instant, terror and chaos spread around the world. The vanishings cause unmanned vehicles to crash and burn. Planes fall from the sky. Emergency forces everywhere are devastated. Gridlock, riots, and looting overrun the cities. There is no one to help or provide answers. 
In a moment, the entire planet is plunged into darkness. And that is the official... <laughs> that is the official and that was the description end? on Rotten Tomatoes provided by the movie studio. That, that was the end of <laughs> That's the description? It. That's the entire In movie a moment, the entire world is plunged into darkness. <laughs> the end. <laughs> that sounds like a Christian movie, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds very hopeful and uplifting. Okay, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Tomato Meter, and uh, critics had to say... Yea, verily, like unto a plague of locusts, oh, man. <laughs> left behind hath begat a further scourge oh, of devastating man. upon Nicolas Cage's once proud filmography. That is terrible. <laughs> that is just awful. Oh, wait, Nicolas Cage had a once proud filmography? Um, wasn't he in Matchstick Man? I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking about. Michael, you wrote about this particular movie the other day on your website, RenewTheArts.org. I did. Uh, and it was Say under the, website the title RenewTheArts.org. <laughs> RenewTheArts.org. We'll just have this replay. I'll set it to repeat for a few times. RenewTheArts. RenewTheArts. RenewTheArts.org. <laughs> In your post called Why the Label Christian Art Needs to Be Left Behind. Right. And you had several words to say, and it all looks like very good as an opinion piece. Right. You were talking about the review of this film on Christianity Today, and you used that as your springboard. I did. Now, what is your thoughts initially about the Left Behind uh, novels and the franchise and how this has been impacting Christians? I haven't read them. But you, uh, Oh, okay. So what is your familiarity with Left Behind before this movie? Uh, I have no familiarity with it, largely. I have not seen the movies. I, the thing is, I refuse to read the books or see the movies. Okay. Well, it wasn't really just one of those things where I was ignorant of their existence. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I knew that they existed. I just, I had so little desire. I, I mean, there was one weekend where it was either, you know, yeah, I could have read maybe some of the books or I also had the option of being tortured and I just decided for torture instead. Mm. It was a, you're a better man than I was I in Afghanistan Michael. it was great several years ago when the novels were out and all the hubbub was around and the family Christian bookstores couldn't seem to sell anything but left behind novels my brother got into them and I tried to read one and a half of them and then the radio dramas came out and they were on all the popular AM stations and so I heard some of bits and pieces of the radio drama which were actually fairly well produced in spite of the fact that the story was incredibly frustrating and disappointing to me, even at the time. And then not too long later, there were movies that came out starring Kirk Cameron as Buck Williams. Uh, there was only two or three of those, I believe. And I'm not sure if Kirk was in all of those films. I think he was. And I, from my understanding, Kirk eventually changed his mind about the direction and the intent of the Left Behind series. And he doesn't want to support it and have anything to do with those films. Right. He actually changed his theology. Right. So he's not the only one in no. that time. Like when I was growing up, I basically agreed with the premise in the Left Behind novels, you know, like many Christians have. And then after the fact, I, I got more exposure to Christianity and other schools of thought, and I studied a bit more, and I realized that I just could not find a place to agree with the premise anymore. Right. Even though Left Behind is considered purely fiction, it's supposedly based on a a consistent interpretation of Bible prophecy. Well, yeah, you saw it right there. They, they, they said the quote-unquote biblical rapture. Right. But the thing is, it's really hard to substantiate this particular interpretation of Bible prophecy because, well, it's got loads of holes in it. Well, I mean, it, it's largely speculation. and Largely I, I, speculation, and even its origins right, are yeah. very rather, recent. Yes. And very dubious. Right. Yeah. Now, then tell us a little bit about you, where you were coming from for your article and what you had to say in relation to the franchise. Well, I've been thinking a lot. I mean, if you read a lot of the articles on the site, which again is renewthearts.org, joking now. Uh, but if you go and you look at the articles on the site, you'll, you'll, you'll see that a lot of uh, what we're talking about is this intersection between the market and the arts. I, I do firmly believe that the market has had an extremely detrimental impact on the arts and the church. Um, and I mean, I could explain a little bit about that, but you can see it outlined for you there. Okay, so you said in your original article that this new movie is basically not Christian art, though it is labeled as such by Hollywood. 
So how would you explain why this is not really Christian art and why the world thinks that it is? Well, I mean, it labels itself Christian art. It's apparently for Christians. Yeah, because, um, because I mean, it is based on, I mean, like they'd like to tell you that it's based on Bible prophecy. So therefore it's Christian art, right? Right. Well, and I mean, there are, there are lots of different problems with this. Uh, yeah, because like th- there's this book going around now that's a bestseller called David and Goliath or something, and it's about you know like business principles and theories and you know like self improvement development. It's Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, and it's it's not written by a Christian. He uses the Bible story. He uses it purely for secular purposes. And does that make it a Christian book? No, because he takes it and uses it doesn't make it Christian art well, or a Christian book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, see, I, have, see I the, have read that book. You see how the, the, we're, we're like, we're in a real big gray area where it, things are what we say they are, not because they actually are, but that's because that's what we are told they are. Right. And I think that, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's fine for them to label it like that, but there's a reason they label it like that. And there's a reason. I mean, I've, I've been in contact. I've had a contact with some uh, some people who are making, you know, Christian movies, quote unquote. And, uh, one of them asked me the question on the uh, blog site, Paul Munger asked me, what do I do as far as trying to market my movies to Christians? If I do drop the label Christian art, you know, that's really going to have an impact on, right? Because you'll lose a lot of your audience. Exactly. They won't even bother to check out your no, stuff. They wouldn't. Yeah, and he said, you know, so how do how do I keep from getting lost in just all the movies out there in the underground market if I don't have this label that, you know, sort of captures some of an audience for me? But see, that's that's a major problem. It's not his problem as such, but it's a major problem in the church. In the article, I I talk a little bit about the nature of the church as a market. It's not good. It's not good. The 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 church that is a market in the Bible is very closely aligned to the false church. In fact, the the whore of Babylon um, in Revelation, when she is destroyed, there's really one very loud group of mourners for her, and they are the merchants. And they're mourned for <laughs> they say they it says they they watch her destruction from a distance, and their 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 cry is this: Who will buy? our stuff now that the false church is dead. Now I, I, th- I think that that is a really, really, um, it's something we have to take to heart as a church is the church productive or consumptive. And right now I don't think you can say the church is a producer of good things when we're not even telling our own stories. Okay. Not only have we put it in the hands of unbelievers to tell their stories, they're telling our stories too. Yeah, that's a big problem because the Left Behind movie isn't cast by Christians, directed by Christians, or, by Christians. or to the best of our knowledge, even screenwritten no, by Christians. The only thing, the only thing that's going on there is that it's being marketed to Christians. And the, what's funny too is, is that if you're not a Christian, you may not understand this. Mm-hmm. But if you are a part of the church, then you understand why this is important. Because God makes a huge distinction between the world and his people. It's not that we have a—we're just trying to be consistent here. We're trying to be consistent with what the Bible tells us to do. Well, and it's also about telling the truth. Right. I mean, in any case, like you you talk to anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, etc., all of them will say it's a very destructive thing for other people to tell your story. That's a destructive thing. It's not good. Right. You know, it's not good if, for instance, you have uh, no voices in the black community writing the story of the civil rights movement. What if that were the case? If you had the civil rights movement and all the movies and all the everything were written by people who had nothing invested in that community. And that's happened. That has happened. And I think not good. I don't think that's good. And for the same reason, though, this is the problem. The problem is that things like that sell. They are marketable and they're marketed to the people who want to have a voice, 
who don't feel like they have a voice and want to have a voice. And that's one of the things I, uh, in the article that I wrote, I, I jumped off from um, Christianity Today's article, which I thought was really good. They actually just p- posted recently an update to that article in response to the responses that they've gotten. Really? All, that were very largely negative. A lot of, I mean, they obviously have gotten some positive feedback on that, but a lot of people were very upset with their initial take on Left Behind, where they were, because their take was basically similar to mine. They're saying, this is a movie made by unbelievers marketed to Christians, and they want you to care about it. They want it to be in your youth groups. They want it to be, you know, pushed by your pastors. They want to have special Sunday screenings. They want to do all this kind of stuff. And it's not so that it can get the truth out. It's not so that you can get the gospel out. It's just purely for the reason they want to make money back. And they know that they can make money on the Christian market now. And so they're making, quote unquote, Christian art constraining it to these superficial aspects of Christianity in order to make money off of the Christian market. And I think that is despicable. I really do. I, I think art is communicative, and it should, it should communicate what the artist wants to communicate. And I, that's one of the reasons I don't think art's a commodity. I do not think that you should make art on the basis of marketability. I mean... This is one of the things I've said over and over again for, for the Nehemiah Foundation, and that is that if you look at the art in the Bible, not the safe art, not the art that everybody quotes to such an extent that they don't even know what it means anymore. I'm not talking about Psalm 23 here. I'm talking about, you know, uh, Job, right? That's a really difficult story. If you really look at Job, if you go into Job and you think about the questions that it raises and the problems that it raises, that is a very difficult story. If you were to write a story similar to that, the church would not accept it. See, that that's important. It is very important. Think about the prophets. They also wrote poetry. Job is mostly a poem, and, uh, and the major and minor prophets wrote poetry. Most of their revelation is in poetry. Consider that Jesus' testimony concerning the audience of the prophets is that they all persecuted the prophets. The prophets' audience, their target audience, persecuted them, like unfailingly persecuted them, martyred a lot of them, rejected what they had to say, and then think about it. Just think about it for a second. Would their art have been produced if, in order to be produced, it had to be marketable to its target audience? And the answer is flatly no. None of it would have been produced if it had to be marketable in order to be produced. And that's why I think the market has had an extraordinarily degrading influence on the arts, especially in the church. And Christians need to take note of this, and they need to be supporting Christians. See, that's the thing. Like, I I, I am so tired. You don't understand. <laughs> it is so frustrating to me. I go into churches. I grew up in a church where... You know, I write poetry, I, I, I write music, I play music, I, I love art. Art has been my calling since I was very young. But the message I got from leaders in the church and elders and other men who were respectable men, and I have nothing, I, I'm not holding anything against them, but uh, what they said to me was, art is your hobby. See, that's what it was. It was my and, hobby. And the reason that it is, is the way that the culture has conditioned the arts Apart from sciences. Right. right. I mean, like, in the big scheme of things. It's all about entertainment. Right. Yeah. And I'm actually, it's funny because I was crafting an article before I came over here that I'm going to be posting here pretty soon on why art should not be primarily entertainment. Why actually demanding entertainment from art as our primary purpose in art is extremely destructive to the arts. And again, it comes from the market. It comes from the market. Again, because people like to have their ears tickled. They don't want to hear heavy things. They don't want to hear controversial things. But the thing is, inside your church, right, There's there are probably poets, musicians. Oh, yeah. I, I see the billboards in the hallways. I hear the music in the you know on right. Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. Those people need to be free to create the art God gives them to make. Because 
And they need to have actually a living in it. One of the reasons we're called the Nehemiah Foundation is actually because Nehemiah, now this is a radical idea, but it's really, it's very biblical if you start to, to consider the nuances of what's going on within the scriptures. Nehemiah was in an outcast society. They didn't have a home of their own at that point. They didn't have a place. And Nehemiah secured a place, secured a way to rebuild Jerusalem. At that time, the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. The temple was in disrepair. The city of Jerusalem was in disrepair. And Nehemiah secured a way to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. One of the first things he did when he got back to Jerusalem. I mean, I'm talking one of the first things he did. Before he had the walls completed, before he had repaired the temple, he went out and he found the temple musicians and the temple artisans and the temple artists and he gave them jobs again. It says specifically that they had had to go out into the world because there wasn't a place for them in the temple anymore because the temple wasn't being used. It was in disrepair. No one was even there. So Nehemiah had to go out into the world and find those guys, bring them back into the temple, and give them a job again. Give them a job. Do you understand? Their job was to make music. Their job was to make tapestries for the temple or to rebuild the walls or to, you know, of the temple, like art, engraving, sculpture, you know, like their job was art. And so the, the, the message that I hear in the church so much from artists is, um, you know, you need to get a real job give up this fantasy of being able to make music if you can't make it in the world as a musician. Now, think about that. Yeah, it reminds me of what's happened at my church. I love my church um, for the sake of this uh, anecdote. I'm not trying to uh, you know, belittle the church leadership's direction. Right. A few years ago, they decided to undertake adding a huge sanctuary to the property because we outgrew two previous sanctuaries on the property. And so mm-hmm. we were at adding several additions, really good ideas. And the project necessitated that they find some architecture that they would m- make this new sanctuary look like. Mm-hmm. So the committees, the elders, they decided, well, we want this to be a, a magnificent sanctuary. But how far should we go? Should this look like a cathedral? Should it look like modern architecture? A lot of the churches these days don't even look like churches on the outside. Warehouses. They just look like the mall or a warehouse, like you say. Right. And they decided, well, no, we definitely want it to look like a, a church on the inside and outside. So what they did is they started looking around at other uh, historical and well-represented churches around America that were known for their beautiful architecture and style. They found this one at one of the older cities in the country. It was over a hundred years old and they loved the inside and the outside, but they thought it was too artistic. It was very ornate. It was very beautiful on the inside. It was had stained glass windows and they said, well, you know what? We just don't think that that's spiritual. We think it's distracting. So when we build our sanctuary, none of the art, none of the color, none of the stained glass windows, we'll, we'll just have ordinary sheetrock walls painted in off-white and uh, wainscoting and you know uh, painted finished trim, and that's it. Like, let's keep it plain here because we want people to not think you know we're about nonsense. We want to send the image that we are here just to worship, just to worship, because that's what serious Christians do. Well, yeah, but I mean, even in that, the idea of what worship is has been limited. And exactly, again, I'm from a similar church, and I don't fault these men. A lot of them are inheritors of the, the you know Protestant orthodoxy, and they are operating from what I think is a sound biblical idea that whatever goes on in worship should be organized by what God decrees, right? So if God has not decreed that you should do such and such in worship, then you should it should be forbidden in the church, and we shouldn't just go in there and come up with our own ideas and whatnot. But the thing is, mm-hmm. where that goes wrong is that the interpretation of what God has decreed is, I don't think, biblical. It has more to do with the way the reformers interpreted what God has decreed and less to do with what the Bible actually says. Because if you look in most of these churches, what is the centerpiece of the Protestant church? What is at the center of the of Protestant worship for most reformed, you know? 
The the pulpit? Yeah, exactly. The pulpit, the pastor, the sermon. Oh, yeah. Because the idea is that preaching in propositional terms is, you know, and it says it, hearing comes by faith, and faith by hearing the word of God, you know, or faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So, of course, yeah, you, you know, you're like, yes, of course, you know, so this, the, the preaching is at the center. But let me say this. I don't think that the only way to preach or the only way that churches do preach is through a sermon from the pulpit. Churches say all sorts of things and preach all sorts of things in the entire worship service. Your music preaches, the sacraments preach, the doxology preaches. Everything about the church, the church architecture preaches. It says something. Art is communicative as well as the Bible lesson. Right. And what you said before is part of the reason why art has become so uh, irrelevant in the modern church, that it has become an issue of entertainment. Now, and one of the major reasons for that is that we're very scientistic. Now, I didn't say scientific. We're very scientistic. Yeah. Right? We've misunderstood the nature of truth to think that art really doesn't have anything to teach us. But the thing is, as we're seeing more and more and more and more, as we're losing more and more of the young people in the church, they're not being engaged like they should be engaged because they feel like there's a great deal of hypocrisy and cheesiness and narrow-mindedness and closed-mindedness going on within church. And one of the major reasons for that is that within a sermon, you have a great opportunity to offer answers. And that's great. Propositions are all about saying things. But the, the, the value of art for teaching and instructing is that art is able to construct and hone questions. And there are certain questions that should not be resolved. There are certain questions for the church that should be held in high regard and maintained in their balances, and art does a better job of maintaining those balances than propositional statements can. Like, think about this. Which is true? Is it true that God predestined all of history from the beginning of time and organized it all in his sovereign will? Or is it true that Everything that happens is on the basis of the wills of men, and man has a free will to make whatever choices he he uh, he wants to make. Well, that's a trick question. It and is. That is something that the entire congregation, the world over, is still trying to figure out. Exactly, and most of them are are answering that question. You have sermons by Calvin answering it on one side. You have sermons by uh, you know Armenians answering it on the other side. But see, the the nice thing about art is that art doesn't really answer that question. It hones it. It hones that question, right? So you have a, a, a tragedy like Antigone. You know, why is that a timeless piece? Because it really asks that same question, and it doesn't resolve it. It just hones the question and presents it in such a way that the viewer is left to wrestle with the the crucial issues at hand in that question. And that is a really, really important value, an instructional value of art. And as soon as you strip that away and say it's about entertainment, or when you strip it away, and even worse, Lecrae wrote an article recently. I don't know if you saw it. You know Lecrae, the Christian no. rapper. No, go ahead. He wrote an article recently where he said artists have been prostituting, Christian artists have been prostituting art in order to give answers rather than tell good stories Mm. and ask good questions. And I, I agree with that. There's a place and time for giving answers. There really is. But if you notice from Jesus's way, if you look at what Jesus did when he talked to people, the majority of what he did was ask very good questions, very insightful questions. That was when he was one-on-one, right? He didn't, he didn't even necessarily organize their conversations in terms of propositional statements, and he could have. I mean, you know, master and creator of the universe, I, I'm sure he had all the answers. But the, the point was not in giving the answers. The point was in leading the other person to get there. And what did he do other than asking questions? When he was making propositional statements... He was telling parables and stories that were stories. usually fictional. Not fictional. Even, it wasn't even like he was telling true stories and historical Well, accounts. they were true. They just weren't necessarily factual. Correct. 
Which okay. is something that you should talk about another time. And we right. have discussed a movieology, <laughs> but for the sake of our audience who uh, understands the word "true" to mean factual, that's why I say it. Well, that's the problem, though. Right, and that's y- the problem. <laughs> that's that's why we're having go this ahead issue. Ex- then go ahead and explain the difference between fact and truth, because this you know this comes up a lot. Like I think everybody understands that the Left Behind movie and its story is purely fiction. But a lot of the Christians would like to believe that it's based on a correct and factual understanding of Bible prophecy that could happen at any given moment. Right. Therefore, not only is it factual, but it's also true because it's representing a higher fact. It's representing the Bible accurately in a form of fiction. But that, that again, is like the mainstream understanding of what Left Behind is doing and not necessarily what it really is well, or where we come at it. It's still based on that confusion of truth and fact, though, because a reader doesn't understand, a modern reader in our scientific age doesn't understand how the book of Revelation could be true unless the book of Revelation were factual. And that is... When you say factual, do you mean literal? Or what do you mean? Right, yeah. Okay. Right, so the idea the being that... The moon has e- to really turn into everything blood. Everything is which one is something to one. That, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That happens in the left-behind books. Right, yeah, exactly. And and they're they're very arbitrary about what is and is not allowed to be literal there. And, and that's that's a problem in itself. But the main problem is that by forcing Revelation to be literal slash factual and saying in order to be true to it, you have to believe in it as literal, factual truth, you're actually damaging the truth of the book. You're damaging the power of the truth of the book. You know, fulfilled versus unfulfilled and all that other stuff, that's like on the side. that's, That's a secondary issue. And the real issue there is it's a matter of understanding that truth comprises all facts, but facts do not compose the entirety of truth. Notice that, you know, there's a commandment that has to do with telling the truth. And and what is it, Joe? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Continue. Against thy neighbor. Exactly. See, and people forget that. People forget that. The nature of truth is covenantal. It's not, thou shalt not tell a lie. It's, there are people involved in a context of truth-telling. And you will cause harm. To that person. Yes, depending on how you retell the facts. Or depending on what facts you choose or not choose to tell. Two examples. Very, very interesting. It's a very interesting little little test of uh, our perspective on truth. Um, Two stories from David's life. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and was responsible for the death of her husband, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tells David a story. Is it a true story? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But it's not a factual story. No. It's about some guy who, you know, had a poor man for a neighbor and he went over and he stole the poor man's lamb and then he ate the poor man with uh, poor man's not, <laughs> ate the poor man's lamb with uh with his friends and uh and David is just appalled by this guy's greed and selfishness and uh and he, he's and Nathan says well, what should be done about this and you know David says you know he should have to pay back, you know, multiple times because he, he you know what a, what a terrible terrible man, right? And what does Nathan say? He says, you are the man. Now, is that a factual statement? No, not at all. No, it's not a factual statement. It's not factual at all. Not only was the story not factual, but David certainly wasn't literally that man. But what Nathan said was true, and that's evidenced in David's repentance. Now, let's take another story from David's life. When David was on the run from Saul, he went to the temple, and Ahimelech was the priest there, and he asked Ahimelech for help. Ahimelech gave him some of the showbread and also gave him the sword, Goliath's sword, that David had taken off of Goliath's corpse. And um, at that time, Ahimelech was not aware that Saul and David were at odds. So Doeg, the Edomite, it says, saw this interaction, and he was one of Saul's men. So when Saul asked the question, why is everyone protecting David? Doesn't anybody have any information to give me? Doeg told Saul the flat facts. 
the literal flat facts. He gave Saul a perfectly factual story about how David had gone to Ahimelech and Ahimelech had aided David. Now, it's perfectly factual, right? It wasn't true, though. It wasn't true because Ahimelech had not knowingly aided David in opposition to, uh, to Saul. So, and, and that was proven that Doeg's factual statement was against his neighbor, that he bore false witness, because later when Saul says, who will go to, and kill Ahimelech and the other priests, Doeg is the one who decides, yeah, I want to do that. So it was obvious that there was malice there, and, and, and that's really what's important, because the truth is covenantal. And so the whole thing with Left Behind is just really bothersome to me anyway because of that. Because we, one of the major problems in, in, in the church is that people are trying to take Revelation literally and Genesis figuratively. <laughs> you know, it's like you're going into the situation, you're, going, you're reading these, these works, and you're not willing to understand that there is a larger truth that comprises both fact and fiction, and that both fiction and fact, both figure and reality, can both apply to the same truth. They can both, they can both serve the same truth. And God wrote, chose to write some things factually and other things figuratively, but not, not, neither of them are any more or less true. They are both true. And they are both different elements of the truth. Art very much is a necessary tool for the presentation of particular truths. And once you say that all truth is contained in fact, well, then art loses its place in society as for a truth-telling purpose, and it ends up just becoming this trivial, uh, flippant, frivolous, insipid thing, which is what it is right now, totally and completely devoted to entertainment and totally useless for its main purpose within the Bible. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of what you've said in some of the video content we did for Moviology, so we will link to that in the show notes. Before we sign off, I thought we should probably address the question of supporting these kinds of films or watching these kinds of films if we so much as just want to somehow support the Christian culture at large. Like, this is something that Christians bring up a lot. Like, if you don't go to watch this film, then fewer and fewer Christian films will be represented. Christianity will not be represented, and more and more films will just turn to the dark side. Everything will become, you know, an, a Saw movie. You know, right. like, we're afraid that somehow, if we are not engaged by allowing the mainstream to make our art for us and then to pay them for it, then all the world will do is become a more rotten place where more and more garbage comes in and goes out of Hollywood. And I think that that's, I think that that's a big flawed perspective. Going back to what you said a few minutes ago, the right point of view for us Christians, I think in a time like this is we don't need to support Hollywood to make Christian art. We really need to be supporting the Christian artists who want to make good art, not Christian art. Because in so doing, we can give Hollywood a run for their money. Right. Because we can produce better works of art. Right. We just haven't done it, and we have, or we haven't done it very often. Can you think of any movies off the top of your mind that just like faithfully represent Christianity? And I'm not saying those. I mean, like ben we Hurt. know that there are many that have tried. <laughs> yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's insane. You have to go back to all the way, like something like Ben Hur. But then you say that with like a disclaimer, right. because it's hard to even make that film uh, work for the Christian audience because we have too many preconceived notions going in to watch that kind of film. And exactly. Yeah. So Christians going in to see that film who do not have a proper frame of mind will come away with the wrong idea. Right. Which is why I think first off, you just need to dump the label Christian art and the solution is very local and it's very practical. It really is. And it is very, very disturbing to me that nobody is really willing to see it this way right now. But I think it's changing. I think it's turning around. And I'm thankful for this. But this is the solution. There are artists in your church. There are. I promise you. There are artists in your church. There are probably artists in Joe's church who could have helped a lot with the construction and de- and design of this uh, a sanctuary that they're working on. I-, I guarantee you that probably very few of them, if any of them, were even consulted about it. People act like, you know, what's, the, what's wrong? What's wrong with Christian art? I'll tell you what's wrong with Christian art. I'll tell you what is wrong. There are artists who are in your church 
and they have to work at restaurants and at Publix and at you know manual labor and all these other things in order to feed their families because there's no Nehemiah out there to bring them in the temple and give them a job. Their callings are not their jobs. And that is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. If you want good art, find the prophets that God has called to prophesy with the harp, to prophesy with the lyre, to prophesy with the electric guitar, to prophesy with the movie camera, to prophesy with the you know painting canvas. You go and find those people who are telling the truth in art in your church, and you take the money you would have given to Left Behind, and you give it to them instead. Because these people that you're paying to make the Left Behind movie, I don't want them making the Left Behind movie. I don't want them making Gods and Kings and Exodus and Prince of Egypt and all the rest of our stories. I don't want them telling our stories. I want the people who are living at your church, struggling to make a living, to be able to get be given the money that you would be giving to the world so that they can make this art, so that they can tell these stories. And I guarantee you, not only will it be better, but you will be supporting people who are pursuing God. And the arts, there used to be a time when the church was the standard bearer for the arts. Michelangelo was not a Christian. But when he needed a commission, he came to the church and said, give me a commission because you guys are the avant-garde, you guys are the cutting edge, you guys are the leading uh, voices in the arts. And if I don't get a job with you, I don't have a job. Do you understand how terrible it is that that situation has been totally turned on its head? Where any artist in the church who wants to make it in the arts has to go to the world to get a job. Because the people in the church aren't willing to support them in their arts, but rather are going to the movie theater paying for tickets to see Left Behind. So that more non-Christian movies, more non-Christians can make money off of the Christian market. Seriously. Mm. That is a disgusting situation. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm really vehement about this, but it's because I see people. I have friends who are amazing musicians, amazing painters, amazing photographers who could write good scripts, good screenplays and make good art. And they can't because they don't have time because they have to work to make a living. And it's like there's obviously money in the church. If there weren't money in the church, then unbelievers wouldn't be marketing to the church. So all I'm asking is find those artists in your local community that are actually able to make good art and tell the stories that should be our responsibility to tell. Take the $50 a month that you spend on the world to get your entertainment and give it to them instead. I mean, just flat out, just give it to them instead. Say, here, here's some money for your life to, to support your life so that you can make the art God's given you to make. It's a very, a very interesting notion and certainly one that the majority of the Christian audience going to theaters are not going to take. But this approach is probably right. I mean, like, it sounds right to me. I've pondered these things all my life because I wanted to be an artist early on, but primarily a storyteller. But from the very beginning, I knew I could never make a living as a storyteller and nobody would take me seriously. So... While I was a teenager, for the most part, I wrote stories at my computer to pa- you know pass the time as a hobbyist before I knew I'd have to enter the workforce. Mm-hmm. And I knew there would always be a divide between what I felt, and I felt very early on, called to do, and then what literally happened. So even just recently, I've, I was rebuked by a close family member who wanted to tell me, Joe, you're not doing enough to provide for your family in the secular means, by the secular, you know, the mainstream way of getting a job that just pays the bills and puts food on the table. And you need to, you know, give, give up, give up all the arts and all the frivolous pursuits that have to do with entertainment. And that's in air quotes. But what I, I knew was exactly what we were discussing here. Well, if, Good men do nothing. We get more left behind movies. Mm-hmm. Right. Made by <laughs> unbelievers. You know, who are, guess what? Making Tons a of money lot of money doing off it. of us. And that doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The, it's like, how can you go get a real <laughs> job? I could have a real job. If you'd give me the money that you're giving to all these other guys to do bad work. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for joining us for this episode. If you uh, didn't notice, somewhere around 30 minutes into the show, we actually had to stop for a few days before we could come back (laughs) and finish recording. And I'm sorry about that. I know the audio quality is going to be different in this episode. And that's because TJ is not with us to make sure that everything works properly. I am uh, not used to recording in this particular way. So if you want to learn more about what Michael is up to, you should visit renewthearts.org where he writes articles and he has produced awesome music and I enjoy it with many other good Christian artists here in the South for the most part. And California. Oh, really? And British Columbia. And Scotland. Whoa. Okay, so it's an international (laughs) arts society. (laughs) And if you want to find out more about movies through moviebyte.com, please visit and you will find reviews and more podcast episodes talking about movies that TJ Draper and I have time to review. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next week, we will talk about The Equalizer starring Denzel Washington, who is known for his religiosity. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. Big time. You gotta look him up. Read some of his stuff. I'm not saying he's a very good Christian. I'm just saying he is really faithful. <laughs> he puts us to shame. He really is. Really? Yeah, he won't kiss women or have a relationship with them on screen because he thinks that's immoral. Yeah. Anyway, uh, considering how violent he can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's so, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Cursing and violence anything, is okay. He's actually being consistent. <laughs> so no, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not being serious. I, I find that that divide in the church to be rather weird. But, uh, sex but, is bad, but if you want to bash someone's head in, that's fine. <laughs> So thank you for listening to this very awkward, unusual episode of the Movieology <laughs> this Podcast. This is not awkward. Thank you, Michael. You're awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening.